I've had a good time this morning. That is great. Sarah, thank you. Rich, Steve, all of you. I really enjoyed uh, the music today. Thank you so much. Barbara Porter, someone wake up Barbara and I want you to stand up. Can somebody get a shot of Barbara over there? It is my understanding that you just celebrated your 40th anniversary on staff here at First Baptist Church. pretty impressive. She was 55 when she came to work here, so we, we congratulate you, Barbara. Well, today we're going to conclude our study in 1 John, and as we come to the last chapter, in those first verses of the last chapter, John is summarizing everything that he has been saying. He is summarizing two of his major points. First of all, that Jesus is God. Now, he was driving that home, that Jesus is God. And he called forth three undeniable witnesses. He said, first, there is the Spirit. Secondly, there is water, which speaks of his baptism, in which the Father said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The third witness was blood which spoke of the cross, his crucifixion. So John, as he is writing this letter, wants to emphasize the fact that Jesus is God. The second emphasis for John was that believers in him have eternal life. He said in verse number 12, He who has the Son has the life. So those were two things that John wanted to emphasize in this letter, that Jesus was God and that those who believe in him have eternal life. So let's conclude today, 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse number 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence which we have before him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know him who is true, and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. All right, we conclude today, and John begins by speaking about the confidence of the believer. 
Now, the reason probably for that is that there were heretics in the church at that time who were trying to erode their confidence in him. The sufficiency of Christ for our salvation. So he is pointing out the confidence that the believer has. First, we have confidence in eternal life. You'll notice there in verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. I'm writing this to you who believe. Believe what? Believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the fulfillment of the promised Savior, those who believe. But now listen, it is more than intellectually assenting to those facts as true. You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the promised Messiah. You may believe those things intellectually, but what John is speaking of is that when someone believes that Jesus is the Christ, then there must be a commitment to Him as Lord. So, it is not just intellectual assent to these facts. In fact, the Bible says that Satan believes in God and trembles. So, it's not enough just to believe intellectually that Jesus is the Christ Because I believe that Jesus is the Christ, I commit my life to Him as Savior and Lord. He says those who believe know. They know their standing. What is their standing? That they have eternal life. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, what? Know that they have eternal life. They have confidence. Marshall wrote, John was therefore writing not to persuade unbelievers of the truth of the Christian faith, but rather to strengthen Christian believers. So this is not an evangelistic statement. When John makes this statement in verse number 13, it is not for the purpose of evangelism, it is for the purpose of encouragement, of assurance to you for those who believe in Jesus Christ. So he says then that we have confidence in eternal life and we are confident in prayer. Verse number 14. And this is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. The word confidence originally meant freedom to speak. Later it meant confidence of any sort. I think that John is probably using it in its original meaning when he says then that we have confidence or that we have the freedom to speak to God to make our requests to Him. We have the freedom to make our requests to God. Now, does that mean, as we looked at that verse, does that mean that you can ask anything of God and He is going to grant it? No. There are conditions that must be met. You see, sometimes we think that I can just ask God anything and I am in fact commanding God to do what I want God to do, but there are conditions that must be met. The first is obedience in chapter 3, verse number 22. He says, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we are being very naive. If we believe that I can live a life of disobedience to God and His Word and then expect God is going to answer my prayers. Every parent knows that. You do not reward disobedience to your child. I mean, if you tell your child to do something, 
and your child is disobedient, are you then going to turn around and reward that child for their disobedience? No. Well, neither does God. I might have mentioned uh, this to you at another time. I don't know. But it, it illustrates the point that I want to make. When I worked in the television station in Oklahoma City, we had a clown who had a program there. His name was Ed Burchall, but his stage name was Ho-Ho. I was in his dressing room on one occasion, and we were talking. The circus was coming to town. And he said, Wendell, are you going, are you going to the circus? Are you going to take Stephanie to the circus? And I said, well, I'd like to, Ho, but I don't have any tickets. He said, well, uh, I bought some tickets for my children, but I told them if they did thus and such that they were not going to the circus. And they did it, and so they're not going to the circus. I said, oh, it's a month away. You might change your mind, which, uh, which offended him because he said, are you suggesting that I would lie to my children? I said, well, that's not really what I had in mind, but I just thought you might change your mind. He said, no, I told, I told them that if they did this, they were not going to the circus. So if you want the tickets, then you can have the tickets because they're not going to the circus. All right. Now, see, that is the way that a good parent is in that we do not reward disobedience, but neither does God. And so John is saying that our prayers are answered whenever we ask the Lord for something, that, that we have the freedom to make our requests to God, but there are conditions that must be met. There must be obedience. If we are going to expect God to answer our prayers, then we must walk in obedience. Now, there are two other conditions that John gives in the Gospel of John. Secondly, he says that we are to abide in Christ. In John chapter 15, verse number 7, he said, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. It is not promised that God is going to answer our prayers when we are living apart from God. So we think then that we can live our own lives, do our own things, do things the way that we choose to do, and God is then obligated to answer my prayer. No, he says that we are to abide in him. That is a condition. You can ask anything and it will be granted, but you are to abide in him. The third condition is in John 14, 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, what does that mean? If I ask in his name, I will do it. I think that most people have the idea that I, I give my list to the Lord. I say, God, do this. And, and then I end my prayer. I tack on the end of my prayer. In Jesus' name I ask. Well, that is not what it is. What does it mean to ask in his name? Well, it means that I ask in his authority. See, I am coming in his authority. Let me illustrate this. If I were to go to the bank and say, uh, I, want to, I want to take $1,000 out, they might say to me, well, you don't have $1,000 to take out. But now then you say to me, well, you can, you can get $1,000 in my name. You go down to the bank and tell them that they are to give you $1,000 in my name, in my authority. Now then I can get $1,000. Why? Because I'm coming in your name. I am coming in your authority. Therefore, I can get it because you have it. So when the Bible says that we are to ask in his name, it means that I ask in his authority, and it also means that I ask in his will. 
You recall that Jesus was struggling in the Garden of Gethsemane with the cross, and there he said, not my will, but what? Thine be done. So if my prayers are going to be answered, I ask in his name. It means that I ask in his authority. It also means that I ask in his will. C.H. Dodd wrote, prayer rightly considered is not a device for employing the resources of omnipotence to fulfill our own desires, but a means by which our desires may be redirected according to the mind of God. So I'm not asking for something because that's what I want, but because that is the will of God. The scripture says, or A.E. Brooks wrote, including only requests for knowledge of and acquiescence in the will of God. All right. Now look at verse number 15 because we know something here. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. So what he says is that if I am obedient to the Lord, I am abiding in the Lord and I am asking in his will then I know that he hears my prayers. Do you see that? If I'm living my life in obedience to God, I come to him asking in his will, then I know that he hears my prayer. American commentary said because of the context, the use of if cannot Indicate an uncertainty. He's promised to hear them. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you are obedient, you're abiding in Christ, you ask in His will, then you can have confidence that He hears your prayers. Not only that, you can have confidence that He answers your prayer. You see, we have is in the present tense, which indicates that God grants our request we met the conditions. God grants our request immediately, though we might not see the results until later. It's in the present tense. We have. God grants, when you pray like this, God grants the request immediately, but you might not see the result until later. Plummer wrote, our petitions are granted at once. The results of the granting are perceived in the future. There's a perfect illustration for that. You recall that Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, was in the temple performing his duties as priest. The angel met him there and said that he and his wife Elizabeth were going to have a child, which turned out to be John the Baptist. So the Bible says in Luke 1.13, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. Now what I want you to understand is that Zacharias and Elizabeth were old at this time. Do you think that they were praying for a child in their old age? Do you think I'm praying for a child? <laughs> Grandchild, no child. Now, do you think then that they are praying for a child in their old age? No. It was a prayer they had prayed when they were young. 
and it was answered when they were old. That's exactly what John is saying in this passage of Scripture. When he, when he says in the present tense that a, a, prayer, a prayer from a person like this is answered immediately, though it might not be revealed until later. So he talks about the confidence of the believer. Then he talks about our intercession in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. All right, now here he's talking about the believer's responsibility to intercede for others. He shall ask is in the future tense. So it is not a command, it is an expectation. He is not commanding us to intercede for others. He's not commanding us to pray for others. It's expected. If you are a child of God, believing that Jesus is the Savior, you've committed your life to Him, it is expected that you will make intercession for others. Now, he talks about a sin leading to death, and John's readers apparently understood what he was speaking of. But what is it? I don't want to commit it, do you? A sin that leads to death? What's the reference here? What, what is he referring to here? Sin leading to death? Well, there are three main interpretations of this. First of all, there are those who believe that it is a specific sin for which there is no forgiveness. There are those people who believe, or one interpretation is, that the sin leading unto death is a specific sin for which there is no forgiveness. Now, you are aware that the Old Testament makes distinctions between sins. For instance, there are inadvertent sins in the Old Testament. Sins, perhaps, of ignorance. Now, if one commits an inadvertent sin and then a proper sacrifice is made for that sin, then they're forgiven. That is the Old Testament, inadvertent sin. But then there are also deliberate sins. And in those deliberate sins in the Old Testament, uh, there must be death. In the American commentary, it says certain designated sins such as murder, idolatry, injustice, apostasy, adultery, and fornication were sometimes considered to be mortal sins. These sins push one over the edge and beyond the reach of God's grace. Now, as we put this in the context, I do not believe that First John sustains this idea or this interpretation for the sin unto death. So there is a second interpretation, and that is he is referring to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 32, And whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Stott wrote on his comment concerning that verse, This sin was a deliberate, open-eyed rejection of known truth. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is, well, first of all, it is a verbal blasphemy. 
It is verbal blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is knowledgeable. This is not something that is done out of ignorance. It is something that is done knowledge, out of knowledge. It is continual. They continue the position against the Holy Spirit. Now, that is a true presentation. That, I believe, is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But I'm not sure that is what John is speaking of here. There is a third interpretation. And it is the the view that John is referring to a rejection of the gospel. Total apostasy. Rejection of Jesus as the Son of God and denial of the faith. Thus, a believer cannot commit this sin. Verse number 16. If anyone sees his brother, Christian brother, committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. I believe the Bible teaches that a child of God cannot commit this sin. Now, if you look in chapter 2, verse number 19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. There are those people we wonder how in the world these people who say that they are Christians do the things that they do and get into sin. And oftentimes it's because they are not Christians. They are doing what they are doing because they are not Christian. Chapter 3, verse number 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Chapter 5, verse 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. So, whenever we're talking about a sin unto death, it is my belief that a Christian cannot commit this sin in the context of 1 John. It is a sin of an unbeliever. So, John is saying here that we therefore are to pray for each other. We sin, but we are to pray for each other. Then he comes to knowledge. You'll notice in verses 18 through 20, three times John says there are some things that we know. He says, first of all, we know that we do not habitually live a life of sin. Verse number 18, we know that no one who is born of God sins. Now, John is not saying that a believer never commits an act of sin because we are not perfect. Whenever you become a believer, it does not mean that you are perfect. You see... Here's the reason I think that we think that is because, by and large, we understand salvation as an event, that I commit my life to Jesus and I am saved. And it is an event, but it is also a process. You must understand that salvation is an event when I, tr- I, I commit my life to Christ, but it is a process. And as I understand the Bible, there are three steps to it. First of all, there is justification. That is when I commit my life to Jesus Christ, and now then I am declared to be righteous. When I commit my life to Jesus Christ, I am not going to hell. Not because I don't deserve to, but because Jesus has determined that, uh, that I am justified. So there's justification. Secondly, there's sanctification. After I am justified, the Lord begins to work in my life, putting away sin so that I am becoming more like Jesus. That is the process. If you are saved, that is where you are in, in, in the journey. You have been justified... 
You are in the process of sanctification, putting sin out of your life so that you're becoming like Jesus. And then ultimately there is glorification. That's when we go to heaven and there we are free from the presence of sin. The believer sins, but the believer also is kept. Look at verse number 18b. He who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. The Christian sins, but is not a slave of sin. Plummer wrote, a child of God may sin, but his normal condition is resistance to evil. Westcott wrote, the Christian has an active enemy, but he has also a watchful guardian. Ladies and gentlemen, if, if one is a Christian, they may sin, but they never accept defeat. As a child of God, yes, we sin, but we are never comfortable with sin. And if you're comfortable with sin, you might ask yourself the question about your relationship to God. I'm running out of time, and I've still got some, go, some to go, so let's do this quickly. Y'all are holding me up a little bit here. We know that we do not sin in that way. We know that we are of God. He says in verse number 19, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The world is under the authority of Satan, therefore we ought not be surprised when the world spews forth its fill. But he says that we are of God. Then he says that we are... In him. We know that we are in him. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Now, what does that mean to us? We are in him. What does that mean? It means that we believe that Jesus has come, that the Messiah has come. The, the promise has been fulfilled. That's what we believe. And then he says that he has given us what? Understanding. Now, I think that's important. We believe that he has come and he has given us understanding against the heretics that would tell us things that are not true. I'm always surprised whenever I get around Christians and find out that their theology is shaped more by Oprah than it is by Paul. There's no excuse for that. The Bible says we believe that he has come and he has given us understanding and he is true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Finally, he comes to a warning in verse 21. Little children, guard yourself from idols. In the Greek usage of the word idol, it had the sense of unreality. Plato used it for illusions of this world as opposed to the unchangeable realities of eternity. When the prophets used the word idols, they were talking about counterfeit gods. An idol is something that is worshipped instead of God or in place of God. Westcott said an idol is anything which occupies the place due to God. Now, let me very quickly give you some examples when money becomes an end rather than a means to an end, it is an idol. When the pursuit of your career becomes more important than your pursuit of God, it is an idol. When your desire for pleasure is greater than your desire for God, it is an idol. 
when your quest for education and knowledge is greater than your quest for God and the Word of God, it is an idol. Today we conclude John's letter. He said, the believer has confidence. He has confidence that he has eternal life, that his prayers are heard and answered. The believer intercedes. It is natural for a believer to intercede for others. And the believers have knowledge that we do not habitually live lives of sin, that we are of God, and that we are in Him. So John concludes, little children, guard yourself from idols. You know what his word says. You know what John said. As you apply that to your own life, where does that leave you? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you living your life in a way that your prayers can be answered? Our Father and God, we come to this time of invitation asking, Lord, that you speak to our hearts, draw people to Christ. Lord, for believers, I pray that they might be encouraged, but I pray that they might be committed. Committed to you and to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir's going to sing. We extend an invitation, if you're without Christ, that you've come to him. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. Whatever God's speaking to your heart about, be obedient to him today. Stand with me, please, as they sing, you come, I'll greet you as you do.